So today, we are dedicating this service to Jim Young, who was forever young. And we will now light a memorial candle that will burn during this service for Jim and his family. I'd like to introduce to you Katie Barrington. Katie is a longtime friend. I met her in, the, in 1980 in Antigo uh, when I lived there for a, a few years. And what is interesting to me and fascinating to me and, and, and what I am just so uh, honored to know about Katie is that at age 48, she left Antigo with her husband Bob, age 50, to start a new career. Katie went to start a PhD in art therapy at Florida State in Tallahassee, while her husband Bob started law studies at UW-Madison. Um, and they both became highly successful. In 2009, at the age of 54, Katie began her career as faculty at Adler University in Chicago. Adler is known as a, as a wonderful university for psychology, uh, art therapy, counseling, and since that time, she has only contributed chapters to two art therapy texts, presented papers in Seoul, Korea, Singapore, Ecuador, eight times in Italy, and in Italy, it's at a conference at which she teaches and she co-organized, and she's presented at numerous conferences in the United States, including one with me at the National Council of Aging in Washington, D.C. Um, Katie helped establish the PhD program at Adler University, and she's a board member of the National Art Therapy Credentialing Board, which is important because they look at the ethics of credentialing someone. You can't just say you're an art therapist um, and, and, and put your sign out without being credentialed. Uh, she's also a certified thanatologist, which is the science of death and dying. She's a counsel, uh, it's, and she has, um, she is retiring from Adler this year. My background it originally was a BS from Madison and an MS from uh, Bradley University in speech pathology. But I was teaching at UW-Milwaukee, um, and I started my PhD during that time at age 42. I finished at age 47. And mine was the first committee-directed degree that was administered at UW-Milwaukee. And I used five different departments from UW-Milwaukee and the Medical College of Wisconsin. I did my dissertation on the dissolution of language with Alzheimer's disease under the direction of Dr. Piero Antuano, a neurologist who was the director of the Dementia Research Center at the Medical College of Wisconsin. After serving as faculty for several years in the Department of Communication Disorders, where I taught the neurology courses or the neurogenic speech pathology-related courses, I co-owned Therapies Plus, a rehabilitation company of 40 physical, occupational, and speech therapists that operated in our four private clinics in central Wisconsin, as well as in nursing homes, home health agencies, and birth to three programs in five counties. I retired at age 71. Good morning, everyone. Thank you all for coming today. 
Um, it's lovely to see all of you, and I hope I get a chance to talk with you. Um, so I've put together some interesting facts about people that we may be familiar with. Sigmund Freud is one of them. His dates, uh, 1856 to 1939, he published his well-known works, The Ego and the Id, at age 67, and he published The Future of the Illusion at age 74. Um, Antonio Stradivari, also known as Stradivarius, uh, 1644 to 1737, he was a legendary violin maker. He went on, he made cellos and um, violins, violas, and his method created the standard uh, for that which has been followed for years. Um, these, are, th these are impressive. Albert Schweitzer. Uh, was known for the remarkable work as a missionary in Africa. I know many of you may have uh, been to Africa because I know there's a community of people who go there uh, from this community, from this community. Um, anyway, he received the Nobel Peace Prize in 1952. He was a theologian, a musician, a philosopher, and he lived until 90. Um, Helen Keller, we're familiar with her. She was born um, at, when she was 19 months old, she was diagnosed with, um, she was blind, deaf, and mute, and we know that she has, um, um, she, she created the Annie Sullivan, the miracle worker, um, and she was at age 75 when she did that. Um, Agatha Christie, 84 oversaw the 1974 version of the Murder on the Orient Express um, and based her novel on the same. She continued to work until she died at age 86. Mahatma Gandhi, um, the great Itali Indian leader and peacemaker, successfully completed negotiations in 1947 at age 77. Frank Lloyd Wright, at, um, he, he was internationally recognized as an architect, and he designed the famous Falling Water uh, at age 69. And again, the Guggenheim in New York um, at 91. At ni he died at 91. And we have Grandma Moses and many of us are familiar with Grandma Moses, who became a painter later in life, and she uh, was an American folk artist. She started painting at 78. These are amazing people who uh, I can glean just so much energy and creativeness from them, uh, and so I hope to impart that uh, with you as well. So let's talk about the brain. And why it's wonderful for you to do creative things when you are in the later part of your lives. The brain is neuroplastic. What does that mean? What is neuroplasticity? It's the brain's ability to modify, change, and adapt both in structure and in function throughout life, right up to death and in response to your experience. 
It allows neurons to compensate for disease and injury. That's why we have rehabilitation for people who, under, who have strokes or heart attacks. I mean, there is a reason. It, we, it adjusts activities to new situations and to changes in your environment. What are the different types of neuroplasticity? Well, there's developmental, and that's, that's how children grow. It's the genesis of new neurons, you know, or the birth of new neurons as the child develops so that the child ha can do new things with, with each age. Synaptic um, pathways form from these neurons and they uh, connect with other neurons and the child becomes much more expert at everything that it does. Homologous area adaptation is when one brain is damaged, one brain area is damaged and another hemisphere takes over that job. For instance, in the right parietal lobe, the temporal is above the ear and the parietal is right behind. Um, there are visual spatial functions. Well, um, say that area was damaged, then the left parietal area might take over that job. The problem is, in the left parietal area, that's where arithmetic the actual calculation from arithmetic takes place. So it might be detrimental to the arithmetic um, aspect of your talents uh, when that part of the brain takes over the visual spatial. Cross-modal reassessment is, that's very interesting. That's where there's a total change of function in an area of the brain that was meant for something else. Let's say someone is blind. Then the occipital lobe in the back has, on the top um, convolution, is area visual one. And that's where, you know, acuity and, and perception of, of um, sight is registered. But blind people often use touch. They have a much stronger sense of touch for identifying things than we do. And often, uh, imaging has shown that when they touch things, it is that V1 area that has taken over because it can't see and it doesn't have a job, it takes over touch. So now they have a much more developed area, you know, areas of the brain to do touch. And then map expansion, that's what we're going to talk about. That's when an area of the brain expands neuronal functions as a result of learning a new skill. Oh, but you know that your brain is shrinking with age. Supposedly we lose, you know, 10 billion uh, cells a day. Yes, the mature brain is at, at around age 20, averages 1,400 grams, which is a little more than three pounds. But what, by the time one is 90, it's reduced by 90 to 100 grams. Well, that's not very much. That's a little less than 10%. And research studies have found that an adult's brain would have to be reduced to under 1,000 grams for impaired intellectual functioning, far lower than the average 10% that our brain um, 
shrinks due to uh, common aging. Now, women's brains, on the average, are smaller than men's, but we know that they're just as bright as men, <laughs> if not sometimes a little brighter, right? Okay, and they think it's in relation to body size differences. And brilliance isn't correlated with big brains. Um, autopsies of Nobel, Nobel Prize winning people who have accomplished great things have been done. For instance, Einstein was one whose brain was autopsied, and he indeed had a small brain. Studies have found that the aging brain responds to mental exercise the way your muscles respond to physical exercise. Thus, why we want to talk about creativity today. And not all cellular loss occurs equally. Between a person's early 50s and late 70s, there is an increase in both the number and the length of the synaptic branches from individual brain cells in different parts of the brain that are involved with higher intellectual functioning. And I'll talk about what area that is later. So indeed, that area of the brain we know expands as we get older. But why do new learning? Why be creative and, and take up something new? Painting, music, dance, building canoes, going to boat schools, um, learning photography, writing poetry. Find an activity that you not only start, but you can build on. You start with an introductory aspect to it, and then you, you um, add on more knowledge about that creative aspect, and it gets a little more difficult for you. So you have to put more into your memory. You have to, um, you have to problem solve more. New learning improves information processing, memory storage, and this is especially found in the hippocampus. And the hippocampus is extremely important. Which areas of the brain are most helped by creative new learning? The prefrontal region. And that's the one where I want to talk about when I talk about higher intellectual functioning. That is what you have heard people talk about as the executive function area. It's your executive of your brain. It's where all higher level intellectual organization takes place. First of all, analysis. You're, let's say you're starting a creative activity. You have to decide where to start. So you're doing an analysis. It has, it, it's where discrimination occurs. Which rules of this new creativity are a priority? It's where organization of thoughts um, on how to proceed would be organized. It, and then, very important, it's where self-awareness occurs. Because as you go along building that boat or writing that poetry, you decide, no, this isn't right. You have done a self, you're self-aware. And so you have to um, problem solve, and that's where problem solving is. So 
This prefrontal cortex is the executive function of your brain, and it is highly important. And it is one, along with the hippocampus, one of the most important areas for you if you're learning something new and creative. The hippocampus. What are the three functions of the hippocampal area? First of all, it's part of the limbic system, which is your emotional system. But it plays a vital role in regulating learning. It's where memory is encoded and consolidated. Encoded means, you know, it, it, it perceives the memory and then it stores it. But you better, you better do some repetitions. I mean, if you're going to, um, if you're going to make those shaker boxes or write that poetry, you know, you better, you better do, do it a little more often than once. So that memory stays embedded because it's gonna be embedded right there in the hippocampus. And unfortunately, that's the area that gets damaged with dementias. And also with head trauma. And it can, it can be interfered with with depression. Depression can slow your memory and your cognition but antidepressants change that and reverse it. So that's, that's the wonderful thing about that. Interestingly enough, that little hippocampus is also good for spatial navigation. It works with your right parietal area so that you know where you're going and, um, and, and how to move. Um, so when Edna takes her tap dancing lessons, she knows um, how to do it. <laughs> and um, Roxanne has joined her in that. Okay. Um, I can tell you that they have found that the hippocampus through imaging, you know, we have wonderful brain imaging techniques today, um, much more advanced over the last 15, 20 years than ever. When I, I taught at the university, I would teach all the imaging techniques, uh, for, you know, pet scanning, spec scanning, cat scanning, uh, and they are way beyond that. Uh, I, I left the university in, what, 1998, and so in, in that 24 years, advances have been phenomenal. And they have found that aerobic exercise especially causes your hippocampus to expand. It needs oxygen. And biking, Carl and Barb, and the rest of you in here who bike, um, is one of the most perfect exercises for hippocampal growth. Now, if you are going to learn a new activity, a new creative activity, let's, let's take dance, all right? Edna and Roxanne are in tap dancing. Edna's also in ballet and jazz, all right? She did it when she was young, but she just started going back a few years ago, and Roxanne had never done it before, and that's how they met each other. All right, you need your motor cortices on the left side in order to move your muscles. You need area visual one in the occipital lobe because you need to watch the instructor. Uh, you need your right temporal lobe to follow the rhythm of dance because that's where rhythm and melody is. You need the hippocampus for memory encoding. 
You need the right parietal lobe and the hippocampus for spatial orientation and navigation. And you need the prefrontal area so you can self-evaluate, problem solve, and finally analyze if you're doing it right. Now that's a lot of parts of your brain. And that just goes to show that you can be creating new neurons in all of those areas if you repeat your activity. The last area I want to talk about is bilateralization. And that's the use of two hemispheres to do something. And what's interesting is that a lot of you do autobiographical writing, or you tell stories to your grandchildren about what it was like in the old days. Well, why is autobiographical writing and scrapbooking and collaging really important? It's, it, it, first of all, it often helps us find meaning and patterns in our life, right? But research has shown with brain imaging again that when young people um, tell something episodic, you know, some life story from their young life, they're mainly using only the left hippocampus. But when older people tell their life story, Brain imaging shows that they're using the left and the right hippocampus because they think, researchers theorize, that the right hemisphere, which is what puts holistic meaning and synchronization to what you're saying and what you're doing, that the older people are using life's experiences and they're synchronizing it and putting more meaning into what they're saying. And that activated the right side of the brain as well as the left. So get into writing stories for your grandchildren and tell them about the good old days when you walked uphill both ways to school. Um. Anna, thank you for the scientific um, ex explanation of that. How are we going to put this into practice? How are we going to operationalize this? Um, so I'm going to talk about creativity that enhances physical and mental health across the lifespan. I'm going to focus on aging. What is creativity? How is it defined? How have other theorists talked about this? And one of the, Rollo May, um, he is a psychologist, a Swiss psychologist, who, existentialist, who has written a book called The Courage to Create. And he said it's the process of bringing something new into being. Um, Gene Cohn is another, uh, Dr. Gene Cohn, he's an MD doctor, um, he has talked about how creativity is an emotional and intellectual process. It's a mechanism that can displace negative feelings and um, like anxiety or hopelessness and with, with feelings of connection and well-being. Um, who possesses creativity? Everyone. We just need to tap into that energy. Each of us have that uh, creativity um, within us. And the potential is just amazing. It's out there. It's however you can tap into it. Challenges. I want to acknowledge that, yes, the aging process presents challenges. Um, 
to physical, emotional, and social well-being. Yet, as Anna was explaining, if we tap into the scientific parts of it, which was just explained, our creativity coupled with life experiences are a dynamic duo, and it can, we can overcome many things, um, and we can enhance our lives. So I'm gonna talk about five benefits to engaging in creativity. Number one, it strengthens our morale. Creativity helps us transcend adversity, which helps us manage and cope with our daily lives. Number two, benefits, excuse me, creativity contributes to improving physical health. Um, it fosters a positive outlook. That hippocampus grows. <laughs> um, and we tend to um, look at the beneficial functioning of our immune system, so it, it, it gets better as well. Three, it enhances our relationships, um, which also increases and strengthens our community. Four, it fosters a sense of well-being, quality of life, which is often linked to resiliency. And there is research out there that says aging, people who are aging have more resiliency. Why? Because they tap into this. And they can review and transcend losses into opportunities um, and navigate adversity much more easily than younger people. And five, our creative endeavors can become our legacy. We can pass our, um, these on to our children, our grandchildren, um, our loved ones, all of them. Um, we become a model for them, whether it's a favorite recipe, cooking, it can be um, more tangible, like the boxes and, that we make, uh, the writings that we do. Uh, the journaling, the photos that we take. Um, yeah, it, and, and we can also um, intercept any misinformation about aging. We often get better as we age. And that's been my mantra throughout my education. And when I teach with students, I'm like, we get better as we get older. So don't focus and dwell on the negative. Yes, negative things happen, but there are so many more positive things that are happening. So what are some factors that help explore and engage in one's own creativity? We have the courage. Older people have the courage for self-discovery, much more so than younger people. And there's research to uh, establish that too. Um, we acknowledge, one thing we can do is acknowledge our wisdom. We can give to our communities. Um, there's a combination of things that we've learned. We need to acknowledge that, own it, and pass it on. Um, pursue personal um, and spiritual growth. There's research out there to say that older adults tend to become more spiritual, become more community-minded. Um, and pursue that personal growth, yet reaching out for others. Um, and 
to look at things from different perspectives. Our experiences have informed us that things haven't always gone exactly the way we've thought it was, so we've had to find new paths, we've new solutions, and um, that helps us manage our daily life. So I'm gonna ask you, to, each of you, to privately just reflect on your own life and take a moment and ask yourself, in what ways has creativity played a role in your life? Do you feel that you haven't done something particularly creative? These are some suggestions. Ask yourself, if not now, when? Visualize things around you that you consider beautiful and think about the beauty that surrounds you. Um, reflect on conversations, uh, books, interactions you've had with others. Do you wish to connect with others, a project or a community? Find community members who might share that same interest. Does your circle of friends have different um, age groups uh, or people with different ages? Um, invite intergenerational diversity. Strengthen community relationships by spending time with people who are different, with different ages. Are you looking for a sense of inner peace or purpose? Reflect on your accomplishments, acknowledge them. One thing that I do I, in all my work, and I've worked a lot with older adults, my dissertation was using art therapy with older adults in hospice. And one thing that I found is that people often forget about their own accomplishments and they rarely acknowledge them. So one thing that you can do is to say, I did this, I own it, I, and, and really build from that. Reach out to others and trust yourself in your knowledge. Remind yourself that your courage and strength and spirit will lead you to do more. So that energy is multiplying and it's contagious. Do you want to do something more in the community? Share those ideas in the community. Do you wonder if you're creative enough? Oh my gosh, yes, you are. Go for it. Everyone has creativity. We are the artist of our own life. What we would like to do right now is have you um, have a little discussion with you. Um, before we do that, I, I would like to further talk about Katie's dissertation. Uh, her, her PhD program might have been in Florida, but her research took place in Antigo, where she had lived in the past. Her research took place in Antigo, and she worked with the hospice program in Antigo, uh, run by the nuns in the uh, Langley County Memorial Hospital. And she, you know, had to run this through her research committee um, at the university, and she had to have permission um, from the patients in the hospice program. But she visited families of people who were dying. And she asked them to do an art activity that would symbolize something positive they had done in their lives. She, first, she asked them to reflect and talk with her and then do an art activity. And of course, many older people would say, well, I, I can't draw. 
And I remember one, one simple task that I, was, I just thought was the most creative thing I've ever heard of. Take your right hand and put it on a piece of blank paper and outline that hand. Remove your hand and in each finger and thumb, write something that you're proud of or happy about in your, from your life. That just was one idea. And then she came back a second time and visited the caregiver of the person who was dying and asked them to do the same, to reflect on that person that they had cared for's life and to do some simple art activity and, and, and then write in, and then Katie would fill in. If they didn't want to write, you transcribed. She tape recorded everything, transcribed it, and, and wrote it in on that piece of paper. For many of these people, she then went home and framed it and took it to their funerals, gave it to their families who displayed it at their funerals. And you cannot imagine how meaningful that was to those families. It, to me, it's one of the most wonderful dissertations I've ever heard of. 